Hey, this is Kate. Welcome to Two Pastors Take a Walk and Make a Podcast. Take a run. Take a run. We did take a run. That's true. This but is your line. I think we're going to have to stop saying that at some point because it really doesn't do what we think no it one does. Cares. No one cares. Also, this is Yolando, and as always, we're talking about what is astonishing us, what we're thinking about, and what we are preaching. And have you noticed lately we really haven't gotten to the what we are preaching I know, part? Because we've had a lot of <laughs> we've had a lot of big thoughts. It, it's we're languishing and yet still have lots of strong opinions about everything in the world. Yeah. So um, what's astonishing you? Sunday, we looked at Ephesians 2 and uh, talked about the grace of God. And normally when you know Christians talk about God's grace, we immediately go to um, our salvation in Jesus Christ. Uh, the song Amazing Grace comes to mind. Uh, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And, you know, rightfully so, because that is, you know, I think the, the high point of the expression of God's grace. And so we did that. We, we celebrated that, and we talked about that in the context of the sermon, but also uh, wanted to spend some time highlighting the, the part of God's grace that I think we talk about a lot less, which is that daily empowerment by the Spirit to live for and serve God, and that was particularly important to me in this season in which our congregation just seems to be playing this game of whack-a-mole <laughs> with mm -hmm. a lot of different issues and crises in the congregation. It just feels like we saw one and two more pop up and there's just a level of fatigue and uh, asking, you know, how long, oh Lord, how long will mm -hmm. we be in this kind of season? in which, you know, so many things, it's like, you know, you're driving an old car, <laughs> one thing breaks down and then another and another and another, and um, there's just a level of fatigue. But at the same time, when we pause to think about it, there's a level of grace that is sustaining us. And I can certainly confess that at other times in my life in ministry, I probably would have given up by now. Mm -hmm. uh, it ma makes me think of that place in the New Testament where Paul says he's given a thorn in the flesh, in the flesh, mm -hmm. and he pleads with God three times to just take it away. And God's response is, my grace is sufficient. And so I'm astonished by the sufficiency of God's grace for me and for the congregation in what is for us and for a lot of people a really hard season, and, uh, and I guess I, I really want to encourage anyone that's listening, whether they are in um, ministry in terms of the institution of the church uh, in a pastoral setting or you're serving the Lord in whatever setting, that in this season there is a grace that is sustaining and keeping and helping us to keep putting one foot in front of the other when we'd rather quit to keep fighting when we'd rather quit um, a grace that is holding on to us when frankly our grip is weak yeah I I think what's so interesting is so often when we talk about grace we picture it as this it as that force of God which gets us out of something like gets us out of death gets us out of hell gets us out of and trouble that, or that is a true and that's true grace, that is right? true a rescue sure it is and there is a whole other dimension of grace that can only be found in in the hard in the pain in the suffering in the loss and we aren't interested in that and it's very much to our deep loss because I think even when you talk about grace being the force that sustains us in this time and that's true but it's even better than that there is a grace that is available to us in these really hard painful seasons of loss that is not available to us on the mountaintop and is not available to us in the winning seasons and it is a grace that is just as sweet and just as as joy-filled and life-giving as the grace that we get in other places. And so I think that's, you know, kind of the big, 
the, the big mystery that is not going to get preached in the Christian industrial complex, right? Because the Christian industrial complex just says like, well, if you're in a bad place, it's because you've done something wrong. Now come to my church or pray my prayer or buy my book. And then God's grace will get you to where you want to go, which is out of the heart and out of the pain. And, you know, scripture is just so clear, um, like in a million places that, Grace is what gets us to the place where we don't want to go and we find the goodness of God there. And so, you know, that's, I mean, among other places, just top of my head is, you know, Jesus meeting Peter after, you know, in his resurrected body and saying, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And feed my sheep and feed my sheep and feed my sheep. And Peter is like, yes, of course, I'll do this thing. Like, and and God is saying like, well, and Jesus, um, <laughs> the triune God in Jesus is saying, um, you know, time's coming when you're going to get dressed in clothes that you don't choose yourself and be led to places you don't want to go. And and I mean, it's just this idea of we think, well, when we finally get our ish together like this, <laughs> the, you know, once we finally do, then then grace is really just going to rocket us into the stratosphere. And like I I mean, I don't hate to break it to you that that's not how grace works. And that sounds like bad news if what we really want is the grace of God so that our will can be done. But it is life-saving good news when you just are struggling and can't get to where you need to go to hear like you are not doing it wrong and maybe God has not abandoned you. Maybe God's grace is for you here in this. Yes, God also says to Paul uh, in response to Paul's thorn, thorn in the flesh, my power is made perfect in weakness. Mm -hmm. And that's what we don't want to hear because we don't want to be weak. We want to be strong. And I I can still remember, I think you and I were at this, um, at this together, you know, that there's a couple years that we went to those, um, um, global Christian leadership summits and which, which Willow Creek, which I, I found enormously helpful. I still find enormously help find enormously helpful. And, I just remember, I mean, and, and the, the challenge of Willow Creek is that like it's Christianity as expressed through the benign patriarchy. Right. And so like, I just had to accept and get, you know, whatever, eat the meat and spit out the bones that like what you are going to find is a bunch of winners telling you how to win. And, and that doesn't mean that everything they're telling you is valueless. Like it isn't, um, it, it, there's just a lot of good, like, and and so you can learn from it. You just take take the blessings that God has for you, take the wisdom that God has for you, and don't disregard the form in which it shows up. So, but I can so vividly remember this one time, and I think you were there too, where all of a sudden this one young woman who was um, you know a person of color, and she walked up on stage and she began to speak, and she had this very like soft and hoarse voice, and I think like I remember in my own spirit like my initial reaction to her is like oh like I can barely hear her I don't like she's meek like she doesn't have the charisma that everyone else had like I just remember just being like I just really like this woman is not going to teach me how to save my church right (laughs) I was just not and then she went on to talk about who she was and why she was there and she was part of um, a resistance community in some part of Asia and um, had been arrested and tortured. And that was how, among other things, she had lost her voice literally. And, you know, she was in the middle of, you know, um, you know, when, you know, bigger, better, higher, when at all costs Christianity. I mean, here's this woman standing and bearing witness again to give all credit at the invitation of the Willow Creek folks that like, God is manifest in lost and weak and brokenness. And if we refuse to see it, that's on us because any faith that the center of which is a God bleeding and dying on a cross, like God has never hidden this from us, but we're just so desperate to believe. Not me, not us, not, you know, not that's for other people, not for us. It's, it's for all of us. And so I think, you know, the gift is sooner or later, you can't outrun it anymore. And you end up in the middle of a hard season of loss. And it is life giving to think, okay, God is here. And God can do something more. God's greatness is not limited 
to glorifying God by getting me out of this, God's greatness and goodness can glorify God in it. And that's a better testimony. Like yeah. for a for a desperate and bruised and bleeding and broken world, like we have got to learn where the glory of it's the hard long not to defeat think is. Of, um, Daniel in the lion's den, the Hebrew boys in the fiery furnace. Okay, yes, God could get me out right now. But, but even if not, if not God is still I'm still God. not worshiping your That's gods, right. right? Like yep. these are still the values mm-hmm. I want to live by. And like the good news of the gospel is these are not the losing values, which is what the culture says. Like you can have those values and they're pretty, but you're going to get used to get used to losing because that's all you're ever going to do. And the the grand reversal of the cross is these aren't actually the losing values. Actually, they're the winning values. But you'll just never know if you just run. Yeah, in that hymn, Amazing Grace, my favorite line has become, hasn't always been my favorite, but my favorite line has become, um, through many dangers, toils, and snares I have already come. Tis grace that's brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. Whenever I sing that now, I think, oh, I can, I can remain in this for a while. Mm-hmm. I can, I don't have to look for the panic button that opens the door to get out of this yeah. situation. Well, and I think the reality is like one of those things that, that those times show us is that sometimes, you know, we weren't seeking God like we thought we were, but it was, we thought that God had for us things that we wanted. Mm-hmm. And so when we get into a space where we don't have what we want and we just think like in all honesty, we think, well, what's the point of this, Jesus, if I'm still going to end up here anyway, right? And like this is the place where we discover the secret to contentment in every circumstance, right? Like if you you don't know that until you get into a place and you say like just open and vulnerable and surrender of, of saying, okay, God, show me, I mean, please, I'm a celebrity, get me out of here. But <laughs> if not... Um, you know, where, where in this are you and glorify your name in this right now. And I think, you know, those seasons, I don't, I mean, whatever, I expect to have them again. I don't look forward to them. I don't look back with any desire to relive them. And yet they are the greatest gifts of my life. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's, you know, that's the, that's the good news. So, so what's astonishing you? Well, um, so Lent is starting tomorrow in that that is this um, sacred ritual season tradition that Christians have set apart the 40 days before the celebration of the resurrection on Easter as a as a time of intentionality and awareness and um, setting our hearts on growing. Um, and I I just, I think it's interesting, this is not an original observation, but it is so interesting how when you, as you get older, just time speeds up, right? And so there's just an element of like, I can't believe that we are here again. Um, I am grateful that last year when we started Lent, we were still totally in pandemic lockdown. Correct. So um, I, I am grateful that we are planning to have, you know, we are having in-person services. We are beginning to plan for, you know, all of our Holy Week um, worship services will be in person in some way. So I'm just, I'm grateful for that. I'm, I'm astonished by how quickly it can feel like burden instead of blessing. Um, But I'm just trying to re- you know, reposition my heart to a place of um, just awareness of the gift that it is to inherit this tradition, um, to inherit this tradition that nudges you towards intentionality about spiritual growth and spiritual practice for these 40 days and to to not um, lose the awe and wonder of the gift that it is to be able to um, participate in the grace of God and co-create our lives with God. And, you know, we, we've been having a lot of conversations about grace. And so just, you know, that Dallas Willard line about grace is opposed to earning, but grace is not opposed to effort. So I'm grateful to have a tradition and a community that says like, Hey, 
for this next 40 days, let's let's put some let's extra put some effort, effort and intentionality into this because we you can't you can't be you know even like I think we talk about and we say this to our kids and I need to figure out a new way to say this. We talk about like just do your best, just do your best. And the reality is like that expectation that you're going to do your best every day is not I mean if it's your best every day, then it's not your best. It's your every day. Right. So I think, um, you know, I, I wrestle with the season of Lent and I go through cycles where I just really love these traditions. And then I go through these, um, seasons periods where I just kind of resent the arbitrariness of them. And I think like, I don't need dates on a calendar to tell me to be serious about my life with Jesus. I'm serious about my life with Jesus all the time. And then I think, but like, I mean, that's not true. I mean, I, I'm, I can give the appearance of it being true, yes. right? And and I my commitment and my deepest values don't by the grace of God change, but my intentionality and my my effort it ebbs and flows. And and I think being able to say, you know, that is okay. Like it is okay. Um and there's just some ancient wisdom to saying this isn't a have to this is a sacred season and there is an invitation to say what happens if I ask the Holy Spirit to give me the grace to live this season in with intentionality and effort and see what God might grow in me and in and in our community and how we as a culture might you know encourage um and bear one another's burdens in this season. So I'm just, I, I guess maybe I'm saying that what's astonishing me is Lent because I'm trying to, you know, talk myself into that space of saying this is A, a gift, and and how much did we long for this gift this time last year? And, and B, it is a sacred thing. And part of the practice of being astonished is letting your, letting what is true um lead what you notice and what you honor and not necessarily what you're feeling in that particular moment. So I'm astonished that Lynn is in front of us. I'm grateful. I'm cultivating a spirit of curiosity. And I guess like it has been coming over to me just the last couple of weeks of worship, which is just so beautiful um, always, but especially in this season at the Grove of just what an amazing thing it is to have both the freedom of grace and the, and the safety of grace of like, we've been singing that gyro song that Elevation wrote because they write some good stuff. And it's starts off by saying like, I've, I've never been more loved than I am right now. And then the, the next line is goes, um, I wasn't holding you up so I can never let you down. So this idea of both having this deep bedrock security of my worthiness and belonging and belovedness is not at stake. And then also this invitation from Jesus to ask and seek and knock and that, that I can, I'm not stuck where I am right now. And I haven't, I haven't peaked and I haven't missed it. And I am not, you know, that I think is just a really exciting, like to hold those two things in tension is really life-giving. I was in a Bible, and then I'm say this and then I'll shut up. Um, but I was in a um, Bible study last week, um, with a group of folks who are not from the Grove. And, um, the one man in the group looked at me and just with such deep sincerity said, do you really think it's possible for people to change their personalities? do you really think is possible to change? And I, um, and I think what he was asking was like, you know, I can't, I mean, this is a person who is in, this is in a season of recovery. Like, is it possible that I can be more than I am? And I think like in the sense of like, do I think your personality can change? I mean, not if you mean who I used to be was garbage and I want to become someone new, like, no, because I don't think that who, we are is garbage no matter what seasons of loss and destructiveness we've been in. But like, do I think we're caught in these patterns forever? Do I think that you can, you know, find a new way of life up until you're 25, but then after that you're just stuck forever and there's no hope for you? Like I felt like that was the question he was asking, like is a new life 
possible for me, not someday in heaven, but like now? And the answer is like emphatically yes. Like if I believe anything about the gospel, I believe in the power of God to change lives. Like I believe that. And I think we're witnessing to that over and over again in scripture. And I think that, you know, so many of the stories of people, God comes to them, you know, late, like not in their youth when they're moldable and changeable or what, like late in life to say you're 60, you're 70, you're 80. Like you think it's too late. And it, and it, it it isn't like new life is possible. Um, so anyway, that, that to me is all what Lent is about, not a space to say, okay, I'm going to try harder. And then I'm really going to get to where I want to go in Jesus. But to say, I'm going to, I'm going to actively participate in what the Holy Spirit is doing in my life. And, and the, by the power of God's grace, I'm going to grow closer to God and to becoming the person God created me to be. Like, that's what I think is at stake. Yeah. I'm reminded of that scripture that says, um, it is not, it has not yet appeared what we shall be, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him or we shall see him as he is. Um, also, in Romans, I believe, uh, it says that we are being conformed into the image of Christ. So we are being changed. And you mentioned uh, Dallas Willard earlier. And what I think is his best book, it's certainly my favorite of his writings, is a book called The Spirit of the Disciplines. And really, it's a book that, number one, teaches about the spiritual disciplines, but it's also a reminder that these are grace gifts, grace opportunities for us to open ourselves to the power of the Holy Spirit through them so that we might, even in this life, move closer and closer to the people we are becoming in Christ. And you're right, it's not that we are garbage at all, but we are becoming something that we cannot even now fully imagine we can't really articulate i mean the scripture says we we don't know but we know that we'll be like him Mm -hmm. and these disciplines move us along the road and they are not and and they are they are uh i think they're called disciplines because it's not about the pain of doing the work of these disciplines it's about the mindset that you have to have in engaging these disciplines. Because if the mindset is, I'm proving something to God, I'm proving something to self, I'm proving something to other people, then you have missed it. The fight is, I'm doing this out of love for God. I'm doing this out of, of joy. I'm doing this out because I know that this is, this is like, plowing the ground and planting seed. I know this is right. har- th- there's a harvest coming. This is like the manna on the ground that I'm like, what is this? Yes. This does not look good. I don't want to. And I mean, honestly, there is a work, there is an element of work and effort. Like th- th- work is not bad and work in spite of how we might've been mis preached at over Genesis mm-hmm. work is not a curse. Right. So right. to, you know, it, Anyway, so well, and it's also about the right disciplines for the right person at the right time. Yeah. So, for example, you not too long ago went on um, a silent retreat. Like yep. that, that, would, <laughs> that would, that's challenging for you. <laughs> I was trying not to laugh at that. I mean. Like for me, that's like that's bliss. That's vacation. Yeah. That is. Like I considered uh, early on in my call to ministry, the monastic life, because I thought, holy cow, a cell, I get to be alone, you know, a lot of the day, that just sounds like bliss. Uh, but but a discipline, like engaging in this podcast, this is challenge. this is growth for me, because this is not normally how I would engage spiritual things. And so it is about choosing the right disciplines for the right person because they will have an effect upon personality and spiritual growth. And so that when I'm in a period of when I'm when I'm overeating, 
fasting is the right discipline because it loosens the, the, the grip of any kind of addiction for me, whether it's television, sugar, whatever it is. Um, and, and I find these disciplines and seasons like Lent and Advent pure gift. And I just think a part of it also is discovering that no is a life-giving word also, right? Yes. So, and I, I think that's really hard to understand that when God says no, that isn't rejection and it isn't punishment. It's a path to life. And that when we say no to other people, that doesn't mean we don't love them. It doesn't mean we're rejecting them. It means sometimes it means we're setting a boundary that leads to life and that we can say no to ourselves, not always, but sometimes, and that that is a path to life. And you just, you just have to, you know, you have to accept that we live in a culture that it's really difficult to learn, you know, as scripture says, like, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Like, we don't know how to do that because we've been taught in the church and out of the church that we need to say yes when we mean no and say no when we mean yes. Like, we're, our yeses and nos are confused. And so Lent can just be a time where you try out like, what does it look like to say no to something that I normally say yes to? and Or what does it look like to say yes to something that I normally say no to? And let me just sort of really discover um, and try some things that are not my preference, but but might deeply be to my benefit. And we just... Um, we don't, we don't know that. And, and it should be a thing, I think, ideally, that it's not something, I mean, as much as like we lead churches and so we offer people things and say, hey, try this and hey, try that. And so that, I mean, that's okay. But ideally, Lent would be a time, not where you go and look around and see what other people are doing and try to do that, mm -hmm. but where you really inquire of the Lord and say, like, what, what would you have me do? Like, yes. what would bring me life in this season? And, and keep the Lent that the Lord gives you um, and, and to see what happens. And even if it, quote, doesn't work, it works because you are discovering how to hear God, you are discovering what God has for you. And part of discovering what God has for you is sometimes discovering like, whoops, nope, not that. Yes. <laughs> and, that and that's good because remember, nothing's at stake, right? Nothing yeah. is at stake. And so that leaves us free without fear to try and flourish in the Lord. Yeah, And this kind of thing is so important, I think, especially in our time because, and we've heard all the stats about the nuns not N-U-N, but N-O-N-E, those people who, when asked uh, about their religious preferences, say none, uh, but they are also saying that they are very spiritual people. Mm -hmm. And it seems to me that the church for far too long has invited people into a Christianity that then focuses their energy on the culture wars or focuses their energy on how to keep the institution of the church mm -hmm. going or focuses their energy on just believing the right doctrine and having the right apologetics instead of growing in the grace of Jesus Christ and growing in relationship with Jesus. Yes. And so I, 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 yeah, well, good. We, we've, I've talked myself into astonishment at Lent and I'm grateful. <laughs> and, um, uh, um, so what are you thinking about? Well, I have what been are we wanting, thinking about. Well, I, I mean, I know what I know what we are thinking about in a minute, but I am excited to talk about this because I have wanted to talk about it for weeks, and we keep running out of time. I know that this is kind of two pastors make a podcast and only one talks. Okay. Like I know that's the joke, but for the last three weeks, I have had something that I've really wanted to talk about, and we have really? run we've run out of time, so I haven't been able to share what I've been thinking about, and so now it's out of date. And I just want to know that you've probably read blog pieces and thought pieces about this, and you're thinking like, oh, now you're finally talking about it. I wanted to talk about this three weeks, if not a month ago. Um, so there's this thing, and I'm, I don't, we have not talked about this. So I'm like, what is about to happen? So it is, it hit the news a couple weeks ago um, that there is a priest, a Catholic priest in Phoenix, Arizona, and it was just discovered that he was, he put in one wrong word during the baptismal liturgy and the Catholic church has declared every single baptism that he's ever done in his entire career invalid because instead of he was saying, and now he's resigned 
Because instead of saying, we baptize you in the name of, that's what he said. He said, we baptize you in the name of Jesus Christ. And he should have said, I baptize you in the name of Jesus Christ. And because he substituted that we for that I, your face is great. I really wish people could see your face. But because he substituted that we for that I, the baptism is invalid. So there's several things I want to say about that. Like one is like, dude literally resigned. Like he is no longer a priest. B, all of, it's not just they estimated that he's done over 20,000 baptisms over the course of his career. And, and, and the Diocese of Phoenix said in a, like they put up a web page to answer everyone's questions because like everyone who's ever been in this dude's congregation, one of them, this is a direct quote, an invalid baptism invalidates any subsequent sacraments, especially confirmation, marriage, and holy orders. So if you got baptized by this dude, you should have never taken communion. Your marriage is not valid. Your, if you're a priest, your ordination to the priesthood is not valid. Your confirmation is not valid. Like every single thing that you have done or accomplished or become in the church, you're like the, the diocese of Phoenix is literally saying to these people, your entire experience of Jesus is not valid. God was not in any Ooh, yeah, of yeah. it because this human guy said the word we, we instead, instead of the of word I. I. So like whoosh, mind blown. But even bigger than that is like the theology of like, why, why is that so important? It's because we in the Catholic church, like we can't baptize you in the name of Jesus only the priest can because only the priest is the stand-in for Jesus. So the community doesn't baptize, only this priest does. So there's just so many things that I think are theologically so revelatory and interesting about what it reveals about what, I mean, whatever. I'm sure that the Catholic Church, like any other institution, there are just lots of, there is a rich and vibrant living dialogue about what the tradition means and how we understand things. And certain people who have a position of authority get to declare this is true and that is false, but that doesn't mean that it is true or it is false. I mean, according to Catholic theology, it does, but according to reality, <laughs> say, anyway, um, but this it's, is so interesting to me because early in the history of the church, whatever yeah. century, I can't remember how many ago, I mean, this is early, it's early. Donatism, in the, right? Is that what it was called? Well, well there's that controversy yeah. about priests who lived immoral lives, right? Mm -hmm. So if you had a priest who was whatever, just whatever immoralities you want to think about, and then this same priest baptized or administered the sacraments, were, were, were those things invalid because of the priest's immorality? And the church said no. no. Right. The church said no. And I think it was just the, that some of the priests, there were, there, there were persecutions and some of the priests renounced their faith. And yes. so the question was then, if you were baptized by a priest who later renounced the faith, was your baptism valid since the thinking was that person was never really a Christian because a because a quote real Christian could never have been out around the face. So I think it's so interesting, so revelatory about how as humans we turn God into a human project, right? So we say like what saves us is our faith in Jesus, not Jesus, but our faith in Jesus. So then if something happens subsequent to that and you fail Jesus, you say like, well, I'm out because I failed Jesus. And there's no sense that like our faith is in Jesus who didn't fail us. Right. But again, as religious institutions, we have this real pull towards saying like no human effort has to be the final determinant because if human effort isn't fi the final determinant, then how can we make sure that people feel beholden to participating in our life. So it's just like, like fascinating, but I'm telling you, like people are saying like, you're not, married. you're not married, your children are born out of wedlock. Like you should not, you're not allowed to take the sacrament until you go and get and yourself rebaptized. The church is saying, yes, this I, is the way I mean, go. I don't know. I, 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 I mean, we could read more about it, but I just think, you know, it's so interesting and just how different our 
lived understanding and the theology in, in our thinking about God, our theology is so different. I mean, like we, let's just be clear. We talk a lot of, we do a lot of real talk about the Peace USA. Um, so I just feel like it's important to say, like, I am grateful to serve God in a broken part of the body of Christ, which understands that anything that is happening, and certainly anything sacramental that is happening, is happening by the power of the Spirit. Right. And like, in spite of us, not through us, right? Like, if I had the capacity to mess up, I mean, like, then, then we're out, we're out, we are SOL. <laughs> like, and I think, but I, I think again, we are so, we all have imposter syndrome. And so there is this sense, and this is, you know, to a lesser degree, but this is, this tug is present in our denomination as well. There's this idea of like, well, just tell me what the exact right words are to say and tell me exactly what I am and am not allowed to do. And then I can just believe that, okay, as long as I'm following these rules, then what I'm doing is what God wants me to do. And, and, you know, we want to put our faith in our conformity instead of thinking like, well, I might bust it hard, but I am following the wild and free Jesus who is leading us, you know, across boundaries and all that kind of stuff. We have uh, what's called a book of common worship. Mm -hmm. And this book um, lays out the words to say in a baptism or, um, or, or, or in the Lord's Supper. And I remember, and, and early on in ministry, I followed yeah. those. I just, I just read from the book and, and the words are beautiful and wonderful. Yeah. And um, it's, it's a great thing to use. And so early on in ministry, it was strictly by the book, mm-hmm. <laughs> literally. And I remember one Sunday, one communion Sunday, I left my common book of worship by accident in my office. And so we got to communion and I didn't have it with me. And my first response was panic. Oh no, I'm not gonna get the words right. I'm not gonna say all the right words. Well, to my surprise, number one, many of those words were just in me. And they came out because I'd been doing it for years. But I also found that the words that were not in me, other words came Mm -hmm. that were even, I, I won't say better, but um, they were spirit led and spirit mm-hmm. empowered, and the merger of the two was beautiful and wonderful. And I left that experience thinking, okay, that's that needs to happen more often. Yeah, and I just think like there has to be this sweet spot between. I mean, like we love words, and I love words, and that's great. But it's not our words that make the sacrament. You love it's, words. Shut up. <laughs> I said it, so you didn't have to. But I mean, it's not our words and it's not our right speaking of the words that make the sacrament. It is the the foolishness of God that Absolutely. inhabits just the the offensively ordinary thing. I mean, like if God had wanted the sacraments to be like visually externally impressive, God would not have used water, bread, wine, right? Yes. And so I just think that, you know... Because I can remember, you know, it was a long time before I was in ministry that I realized, hey, the people who told me you have to say it like this, which there, to be clear, in case anyone is wondering, there really are not rules in our tradition that say you have to do it like this. Correct. A lot of us are trained at seminaries where we're told this is the way you do it. And we're trained at a time, a stage of our development that we don't question like says who, right? We just think like, well, this is the person who's grading my test and they're telling me and so blah, blah, blah. But, um, you know, a lot of us, I mean, I'm not mad at the Book of Common Worship and there's a lot of good stuff there. And also only certain people got to sit around the table and decide what the Holy Spirit was saying, right? So again, I don't think that means the Holy Spirit wasn't revelatory to them. I just mean the idea that we're going to say only these words, quote, count is colonialism and white supremacy, right? So to, to say you can go to the other extreme and just sort of get up and let whatever drivel comes out of your mouth come out and like act like it doesn't matter. And there just has to be this tension of coming forth with, with reverent, surrendered intentionality and being in that moment. Because the other thing I hate 
I mean, and bless them. Like clearly this is why people would sit up there with a book because they have the idea that if I substitute a we for an I, it all won't work. But like, I hate it when you are in a sacrament and the person is just reading the book and you can just tell like they've read these words a million times and they're going to read them a million more times. Like, I don't like it when people are like acting, but I mean, just saying like, let's be in this moment together. Like Jesus did not hold up a book and he said, you know, take, eat. This is my body broken for you. It's the act. And, you know, and what, and anyway, so it's not a performance. Um, but I just, I've just been fascinated about that and fascinated that, yeah, like that's just, that, that is what is happening. Like thousands of people's Christian lives in Arizona are being disrupted because the, um, context says one person has this kind of power and, God's will and human yeses can be undone by the humanity of one guy who sounds just like devastated. Um, and I mean, how could anybody ever dare to stand up and not just read out of a book if they were worried that I might substitute one word in the moment? Because I know you and I have this experience a lot. Like when you are really, I think, doing worship well from a place of deep freedom and faith, you're not all that aware of what you're saying, right? Like you are just kind of really in that place that I think psychologists call flow, right? Mm -hmm, like you're not mm -hmm. thinking about yourself and you're not thinking about what you're doing. You're just doing it. And you could never get to that place. I would never be able to get to that place if I felt like if I say a wrong word, I have then undone the power of God in this space. Like it's just crazy. That's amazing to me. Yeah. Wow. So wow. anyway, I've been wanting to talk about that for weeks. So now I no cannot believe we have not talked about that before. Well, we've been, wow. <laughs> there's been a lot going on. So yes, I've been thinking about that too. Wow. Yeah. Well, ironically, this Sunday, I'm looking at the text from first Peter, uh, where it says we are, um, a chosen nation, a royal, a royal priesthood. priesthood. Yeah. We are, <laughs> we, um, yeah, anyway, it's sad. And I do want to just say, I understand that the Catholic Church is just as broken as the Presbyterian Church, and the Presbyterian Church is just as broken as the Catholic Church. And there's, like, our brokenness looks different, and our weakness looks different, but it isn't any degree of magnitude better or worse. So I have no pride in being Presbyterian, and I have no disgust for, you know, it just, this is just... We, this is why we need each other. This is why there should be one body because there should be one body so that people, so that other brothers and sisters could be like friends. Yeah. Come on now. But because we have separated ourselves and said, I have no need of you. Then people are just saying like, you can think whatever you want about that, but it doesn't matter because you're not Catholic or you're not a man or you're not a priest. And so you have nothing, you have nothing revelatory to say. We have nothing. We cannot hear the Lord for yeah. me. Like, okay. And anyway, so we are also going to talk, um, on the walk, we were saying, what are, well, what are you thinking about? Well, we're thinking about right. what the rest of the world is thinking, thinking about, about, which is uh, Ukraine. and We really should have led with that. Well, um, <laughs> for me, it, it's so challenging because so much of that uh, situation is, um, so much of, of, of the meaning behind what's happening and, and the reasons it's hidden in a lot of history that we're not taught. Mm -hmm. um, from what I understand, I mean, there are some things that go all the way back to like Catherine the Great, who um, in the eastern part of what we call Ukraine um, started to settle Russian citizens there. Um, outlawed the use of the Ukrainian language and um, said everyone was going to speak Russian uh, to the time of Stalin. Um, I think he, um, um, I'll use the word facilitated uh, a, a famine and then used that to move some ethnicities out, move more Russians in. And so that part of Ukraine is now mostly ethnically Russian. And then the eastern part 
of Ukraine is uh, Slavic, mm-hmm. and it hasn't always been this way, but now the eastern part of that country is looking to Europe mm-hmm. uh, in terms of uh, not just identity, but uh, being an ally. And then in the eastern part um, are looking to Russia because there's this shared language and culture and history and and it seems that uh, Putin has used that as an excuse to say, hey, I've got to come in to protect these Russians. And um, I I just find the whole situation complicated. I I, I do uh, think that Russia is in the wrong. I I do think this is uh, one um, for their national pride uh, uh, since the uh, dissolution of the Soviet Union. Uh, I've heard that this um, increases uh, Putin's um, approval rating at home, uh, that this gets him lots of pats on the back by protecting these ethnic Russians in Ukraine. Also, um, it shouldn't be a surprise to us that that part of the country is rich in coal, steel, and has great farmland, so there's an economic Mm-hmm. impulse as well um, and so I guess we shouldn't be surprised but it's just so sad to see innocent people literally under fire well and I think one thing that's really interesting that's just important to name in the context of what we're doing is one of the explicit reasons that Putin has given for um, justification for what he's doing and I mean, he's saying territory. this territory belongs to Russia. And one of the things he says is we have this common spiritual heritage. So he's saying, like, I am doing this for Jesus, right? Like, mm-hmm. And so that's a really interesting thing that he he very much identifies as a uh, with muscular Christianity and this idea that um, I'm going to get rid of the the feminists and the queer people and the gender nonconforming people, and I'm going to restore this country back to the days of, um, you know, when men were men and women were women and people were moral and I'm, I'm doing all this in the name of Jesus. And I, I think, you know, and using the Russian Orthodox church to do it, to say, yes. Yeah, so, so it is whole, it is holy war. It is holy war to bomb this country, to take this territory and to kill civilians and, and, I think the fact that that can be said and that the world can be, you know, nodding along with that justification just shows how far separated the institution and religion of Christianity and Jesus are and just how, you know, how, um, (laughs) how fiercely shrewd the enemy of our souls is um yeah so but there's other just a lot of other dimensions to this and some in particular that we wanted to point out while just not in any way minimizing the pain the suffering the injustice and really the great courage of the ukrainian people although i also feel like we we have to say I mean, there's just there there's this beautiful manifestation of the human spirit when people are willing to lay down their lives to um, protect one another. Like I think that's um, you know that's the that's the only form of patriotism that is not anathema to the love of Jesus is this idea of loving your home mm-hmm. and wanting not to kill, but being willing to lay down your life to protect your, your neighbors and yourself. But, but even that, I think it's important to point out that like the, f- from a place of deep honor, um, and a place of, of safety, support. right. Well, but mm-hmm. to say that like, you know, the, the idea we have to be careful, even that we need to grieve, what Ukrainians are being forced to do instead of cheering it, because this isn't a John Wayne movie. I mean, this is, this is people killing people and people, I mean, nobody is going to kill Putin. Like 
people are going to kill young, essentially powerless Russian soldiers in the same way that a lot of people would resist and want to protect their homeland from young American occupying forces around the world. And we can see that like that person is an imperialist. That's a kid trying to get money to go to college. Right. So I just, you know, every, every level of this is tragedy and there's no sense that, you know, sometimes in the way we talk about it, it's like, we're talking about the end of independence day. It's not like no one is killing aliens. Um, people are killing people created in the image of God. And the fact that what Russia is doing is so deeply destructive and the choice that Putin is making is evil doesn't mean that the loss of life of Russian soldiers is less tragic because it just, it's, it's horrific. And there's a huge racial dimension to this, which we want to talk about. So, I mean, you should go first. Well, you know, I'm just aware that um, when black and brown people from Asia and Africa are fleeing situations of war, they're instantly called refugees. Yeah. There's instantly talk about border lockdowns, shutdowns, yeah. and there are refugee camps. Mm-hmm. Not so in this situation. Uh, we, I, we, <laughs> Western media so identifies with um, other white people that we're just treating them differently. And I, I'm struggling because I, I also want to say I think we should care about what's happening in Ukraine. I think we should care about innocent lives being lost. I think we should support um, that country's right to exist and not be invaded by Russia. And we also need to be aware of how this war is being covered. Right. I mean, you're not saying that you want people to have less sympathy or identification with Ukrainians. Correct. That's not the point. The point is, why do we sympathize and identify so much with Ukrainians, but not with Afghans, not with Palestinians, not with Syrians, not with, you know, and you keep hearing people in mainstream media saying things like, we haven't seen anything like this since World War II. I've never thought I would see this in my day. People, fl- well, you've got quotes. Well, came yes, I am. Um, I wrote down a couple of quotes. Uh, one is from a BBC a guest or reporter, and they said, quote, uh, this is very emotional for me because I see European people with blue eyes and blonde hair being killed. All right, so it's, it's not simply that they are human beings created in the image of God, but it's that they have blue eyes and blonde hair, that these people are being killed. Right. When it's black and brown people being killed, well, we just kind of expect that, and there's less less shock, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, a reporter from NBC here in this country, quote, these are not refugees from Syria. These are Christians. They're white. They're very similar. Yeah. As if we, to say, to, uh, similar to right, us, to us, right? Right, right. Mm-hmm. Um, a CBS reporter, again, here uh, from this country, quote, this isn't Iraq or Afghanistan. This is a relatively civilized, relative, relatively European city where you wouldn't expect that or hope that it's going to happen. That is the war, mm-hmm. right? So again, we are trained to see black and brown people as less than human as savages and as uncivilized yeah you have another quote don't you no that was the last one well i just i mean what i think is really interesting is we talk a lot about systemic racism we talk about white supremacy we talk about colonialism and i think there's a real sense that people are like what what does that even mean like what like what does that mean and what do you want me to do about like i can't even see it so this helps us see it right the fact that when we see 
thousands of Afghan families flee for the airport in Kabul and we cover it. And like we even cover it as a tragedy, but you don't see people saying things like, I can't believe this is happening because we're like, oh, yeah, this is. Yeah, we knew this was coming. Right. Like we don't and we don't identify. We pity those people, but we don't identify. We white people don't identify with them. That's a major difference. And this is colonialism. Right. Like this is we think like, well, some parts of the world, people are just savages and violence is just going to happen there. And we're going to let it happen there so that it doesn't happen here. But our countries, we are European, we're the Western world, we are the ones who take our civilization to those uncivilized places, and we form colonies, little outposts of our civilization that we, for the good of these uncivilized savages, we put our little outposts there and we teach them how to be fully human. Like, they can be more than they are with our help. Now, while we're there, we're going to, like, kill them and enslave their children and rape their women and steal all their resources. But it's for their sake because they're savages. Like who is the savage? Like, and what you see is here. And I, I think it's so helpful to look at this. Um, one of the most helpful books that I've ever read other than stamped from the beginning is of all things, Trevor Noah's autobiography, which is called um, born a crime. And there's this thing that happens at the end that just blew my mind. And like, if you haven't read it, you should read it and you should skip like the next minute because I'll spoil it for you. But like, he's talking about what it's like to grow up in South Africa and he has a white father and a black mother. And so literally he's not allowed to exist because it's during apartheid. Mm-hmm. And, um, and he's just talking about all the ways that he um, navigates the world and whiteness and growing up kind of where it belonging to no world. Um, and, and as it as it goes on and he tells the story of his life, it all builds to the scene at the end. And one of the things he talks about is, you know, South Africa is such a melting pot. And um, he talks about how people in South Africa name their dogs Hitler. And he said, like, and people like Westerners are like, what is the matter? Like, how, like, what kind of, who could do that? And he's like, listen. My, in this part of the world, like these European nations came over and they just decimated us, right? Like they destroyed us. They had this power that we could not resist, that they just, you know, they, they flattened us. They wiped us out. But Hitler wiped them out. Mm. So like how powerful is Hitler that he could defeat the British, that he could defeat the French after the ways that the British and the French had colonized him. And then like, I just, he just had this mind blowing observation that I was like both so gobsmacked and embarrassed that I'd never thought about it before. But he's like, look, like we talk about like we, you Westerners talk about the concentration camp as the most horrific thing that's ever happened in the world. And I am not downplaying the horror of what happened in the concentration camp. But he says, you talk about never again. Like this was the worst thing that ever happened. And we need to make sure it never happens ever again. And he's like, do you understand that when Churchill came to Africa, every one of his campaigns was a concentration camp for African bodies? Like, do you not understand that what horrifies you about the Holocaust is that what you were doing to black bodies all of a sudden started happening to white bodies and you lost your stuff because that wasn't supposed to happen to real people who looked like you. And I think comparing tragedies comparing genocides I mean it's genocide so it doesn't you don't compare tragedies and you don't rank them certainly but but to say that what Europeans did in Africa bears no resemblance or has a different order of magnitude of of evil than what Germans did to Jews and like that I mean you can say that as a white person but a person of color who saw I mean, an African person who, I mean, like, that's just a totally arbitrary distinction without a difference that you do to make yourself feel like, and so, you know, I think what we see in the Ukraine right now and what we see in white people's reactions to it is the horror of 
what happens when we start seeing like, oh, the kinds of powers and principalities that we harnessed for our own ends, they're clearly revealed as evil when we see the effects they have on somebody who looks like us. Like they seem like necessary evils when they happen to Afghans or Palestinians or or, or Syrians, but when they happen to someone who looks like us, all of a sudden we're like, well, how could this be? How can the world stand by and watch this? How? I mean, book very well. Like yeah. we have a pattern of doing this. And um, this is the thing when we say like motivation for dismantling white supremacy, it's not about being a savior and it's not about being a hero. And it's about saying like eventually white supremacy will destroy white people too. So like if you don't, even if you don't see black and brown people as fully human created in the image of God, and even if you think that the way the world works right now is actually to your advantage and tough knucks to you if you're in the wrong place and you'd be what I do if you were here, what you need to understand is what people are discovering right now is that eventually these impulses of like might makes right and peace through violence, like eventually they'll eat you too. Like at some point you become the lowest human on the totem pole and then your life becomes expendable as well. And that's, you know, that's what I think we see there is what happens, you know, when a strong man has absolute power and no moral compass and no limits. Like there's just no limits there. Yeah. My prayer is that there would be um, peace in Ukraine um, soon, very soon, and that this situation would open the eyes of more and more people to see the humanity of all people. Mm -hmm. I, I and I, I mean, I do hope that you know we have to be able to look for abundance in different places and look for peace and security in different in different places and to value one of the things that's been helpful i'm probably soul shaping maybe even personality shaping for me as a minister of the gospel is to understand and really live into the reality that other congregations, other pastors are not my competition. And to learn how to celebrate their well-being, blessing, and growth. Mm -hmm. And I think for all humanity, we must learn how to value everyone's flourishing. Because at where, where we are now is that we have a a scarcity mentality mm -hmm. that says your blessing is my curse. Yes. And uh, your gain is my loss. Mm -hmm. And so therefore <laughs> I've got to get it before you do. And we're in competition. And if we're in competition, that means I need to do whatever I need to do to win. And you've got to lose. And you're a threat to me. Like you're, you're not my brother. Yes. You're a threat to me. And, and, I, and the shift yeah. is to value everyone's flourishing because there is enough. One of the things we said, I'm, I'm going back to his sermon on Sunday, is that grace is about God's generosity. Mm -hmm. And what flows to us from the heart of God is this inexhaustible well of God's favor and blessing and goodness. And we've got to get out of this scarcity mentality because there is enough for everyone to flourish, to flourish and to enjoy life in peace. I mean, and it is really, you, you take it all the way back to the root of violence, right? Like that's why Cain killed Abel because his sacrifice being acceptable to the Lord, Cain found that to be a threat to him. Like, mm -hmm. because you are acceptable to God, I cannot be. And therefore I need to, I need to end you. I need to wipe you out. And that's, um, you know, still at the root of our, we don't believe in shalom. We just don't trust the goodness of God. Um, so I, oh shoot, I was going to say one more thing about this. And I just, I just missed it. It's well, gone. while you're thinking of it, um, it just seems to me that we're at a moment in history in which we're being, well, we're at a crossroads. Mm 
will we choose strong man, violence, propaganda, or democracy, flourishing of all, um, kindness, and we're just at that place, and it's uncertain. Well, I think for I mean for me, go. like, cause I I don't, really don't want to talk about. I mean, we're not I, we're not, but I mean, like, I'm I'm just less interested in geopolitics. Like, I'm not a politician, mm-hmm. and I do think that that people serve God in that realm. I'm just not one of them. But I think for me as a believer, it's just is it kingdom or empire? Mm-hmm. Is it kingdom or empire? Mm-hmm. Because I think we for a long time have felt like there could be a Jesus empire, mm-hmm. and there just can't. Like, and and so, however, that idea of going after the kingdom instead of the empire gets expressed in the particular sphere of influence that we have as individuals. But part of it is just saying like, I am going to be faithful to God and to the culture of the kingdom, no matter what it costs me, because deviating from this culture, the price is too high because I trust God and the goodness of God more than the false promises of the world that I just know, I know are destructive. Um, And I think we need more Christians in the world who say, I don't, I don't want to live in an empire. I want to live in a place that gives me the freedom to live in the kingdom of God. Um, and, and my enemies are not, are are not threats to me. So, well, we need to end it because that's what we say at this point in the podcast. So thank you for listening. If you want to find out more about what God is doing at Derida, D-E-R-I-T-A, prez.org, you should hop over, hop over to their website and you should check out the, um, Derida Church podcast where you can find all of Yolando's current and previous messages and you should go to their YouTube page and you can you can see him and um, hear the messages and see the worship services and the videos they've produced and you can join them um, for worship on Sunday mornings at 10:30 a.m. and if you want to find out more about what God is doing at God's Church, The Grove, it is thegrovecharlotte.org. That's our website. You can find our podcast, The Grove Church Podcast, which is um, messages from The Grove. Um, and you can check out our YouTube channel and um, find sermons. You can join us on Sunday morning at 10, either in person, still in a mask, or on the live stream on Facebook. Um, so thanks for listening, and we will talk to you next week. Thank you.